Chapter Twelve, Part A of Roderick Hudson by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: The Princess Casamassima. Roland had a very friendly memory of a little mountain inn, accessible with moderate trouble from Lucerne, where he had once spent a blissful ten days. He had at that time been trudging, knapsack on back, over half Switzerland, and not being on his legs a particularly light weight, it was no shame to him to confess that he was mortally tired. The inn of which I speak presented striking analogies with the cow-stable, but in spite of this circumstance it was crowded with hungry tourists. It stood in a high, shallow valley, with flower-strewn alpine meadows sloping down to it from the base of certain rugged rocks, whose outlines were grotesque against the evening sky. Roland had seen grander places in Switzerland that pleased him less, and whenever afterwards he wished to think of alpine opportunities at their best, he recalled this grassy concave among the mountain-tops, and the August days he spent there, resting deliciously at his length, in the lee of a sun-worn boulder, with the light cool air stirring about his temples, the wafted odours of the pines in his nostrils, the tinkle of the cattle-bells in his ears, the vast progression of the mountain shadows before his eyes, and a volume of Wordsworth in his pocket. His face on the Swiss hillsides had been scorched to within a shade of the colour nowadays called magenta, and his bed was a pallet in a loft which he shared with a German botanist of colossal stature, every inch of him quaking at an open window. These had been drawbacks to Felicity, but Roland hardly cared where or how he was lodged, for he spent the livelong day under the sky, on the crest of a slope that looked at the Jungfrau. He remembered all this on leaving Florence with his friends, and he reflected that as the mid-season was over, accommodations would be more ample and charges more modest. He communicated with his old friend the landlord, and while September was yet young, his companions established themselves under his guidance in the grassy valley. He had crossed the St. Gotthard Pass with them in the same carriage. During the journey from Florence, and especially during this portion of it, the cloud that hung over the little party had been almost dissipated, and they had looked at each other, in the close contiguity of the train and the posting-carriage, without either accusing or consoling glances. It was impossible not to enjoy the magnificent scenery of the Apennines and the Italian Alps, and there was a tacit agreement among the travellers to abstain from sombre allusions. The effect of this delicate compact seemed excellent. It ensured them a week's intellectual sunshine. Roderick sat and gazed out of the window with a fascinated stare, and with a perfect docility of attitude. He concerned himself not a particle about the itinerary, or about any of the wayside arrangements. He took no trouble, and he gave none. He assented to everything that was proposed, talked very little, and led for a week a perfectly contemplative life. His mother rarely removed her eyes from him, and if a while before this would have extremely irritated him, he now seemed perfectly unconscious of her observation, and profoundly indifferent to anything that might befall him. They spent a couple of days on the Lake of Como, at a hotel with white porticos smothered in oleander and myrtle, and the terrace steps leading down to little boats with striped awnings. They agreed it was the earthly paradise, and they passed the morning strolling through the perfumed alleys of classic villas, and the evenings floating in the moonlight in a circle of outlined mountains, to the music of silver trickling oars. 
One day in the afternoon the two men took a long stroll together. They followed the winding footway that led toward Como, close to the lakeside, past the gates of villas and the walls of vineyards, through little hamlets propped on a dozen arches, and bathing their feet in their pendant tatters in the grey-green ripple, past frescoed walls and crumbling campaniles and grassy village piazzas, and the mouth of soft ravines that wound upward through belts of swinging vine and vaporous olive and splendid chestnut, to high ledges where white chapels gleamed amid the paler boskage, and bare cliff surfaces with their sun-cracked lips drank in the azure light. It was all confoundingly picturesque. It was the Italy that we know from the steel engravings and old keepsakes and annuals, from the vignettes on music-sheets and the drop-curtains at the theatres, an Italy that we can never confess to ourselves, in spite of our own changes and of Italy's, that we have ceased to believe in. Roland and Roderick turned aside from the little paved footway that clambered and dipped and wound and doubled beside the lake, and stretched themselves idly beneath a fig-tree on a grassy promontory. Roland had never known anything so divinely soothing as the dreamy softness of that early autumn afternoon. The iridescent mountains shut him in, the little waves beneath him fretted the white pebbles at the laziest intervals. The festooned vines above him swayed just visibly in the all but motionless air. Roderick lay observing it all with his arms thrown back and his hands under his head. "'This suits me,' he said. "'I could be happy here and forget everything. Why not stay here for ever?' He kept his position for a long time and seemed lost in his thoughts. Roland spoke to him, but he made vague answers. At last he closed his eyes. It seemed to Roland also a place to stay in for ever, a place for perfect oblivion of the disagreeable. Suddenly Roderick turned over on his face and buried it in his arms. There had been something passionate in his movement, but Roland was nevertheless surprised when he at last jerked himself back into a sitting posture to perceive the trace of tears in his eyes. Roderick turned to his friend, stretching his two hands out toward the lake and mountains, and shaking them with an eloquent gesture, as if his heart was too full for utterance. "'Pity me, sir, pity me,' he presently cried. "'Look at this lovely world, and think what it must be to be dead to it.' "'Dead,' said Roland. "'Dead, dead, dead and buried, buried in an open grave, where you lie staring up at the sailing clouds, smelling the waving flowers, and hearing all nature live and grow above you. That's the way I feel.' "'I am glad to hear it,' said Roland. "'Death of that sort is very near to resurrection.' "'It's too horrible,' Roderick went on. "'It has all come over me here tremendously. If I were not ashamed, I could shed a bushel of tears.' For one hour of what I have been, I would give up anything I may be. Never mind what you have been. Be something better. I shall never be anything again. It's no use talking. But I don't know what secret spring has been touched since I have lain here. Something in my heart seemed suddenly to open and let in a flood of beauty and desire. I know what I have lost, and I think it horrible. Mind you, I know it, I feel it. Remember that hereafter. Don't say that he was stupefied and senseless, that his perception was dulled and his aspiration dead. Say that he trembled in every nerve with a sense of the beauty and sweetness of life, that he rebelled and protested and shrieked, that he was buried alive with his eyes open and his heart beating to madness, 
that he clung to every blade of grass and every wayside thorn as he passed, that it was the most horrible spectacle you ever witnessed, that it was an outrage, a murder, a massacre. "'Good heavens, man, are you insane?' Roland cried. "'I have never been saner. I don't want to be bad company, and in this beautiful spot at this delightful hour it seems an outrage to break the charm. But I am bidding farewell to Italy, to beauty, to honour, to life. I only want to assure you that I know what I lose. I know it in every pulse of my heart. Here, where these things are all loveliest, I take leave of them. Farewell, farewell.' During their passage of the saint Gothard, Roderick absented himself much of the time from the carriage, and rambled far in advance along the huge zigzags of the road. He displayed an extraordinary activity. His light weight and slender figure made him an excellent pedestrian, and his friends frequently saw him skirting the edge of plunging chasms, loosening the stones on long steep slopes, or lifting himself against the sky from the top of rocky pinnacles. Mary Garland walked a great deal, but she remained near the carriage to be with Mrs. Hudson. Roland remained near it to be with Miss Garland. He trudged by her side up that magnificent ascent from Italy, and found himself regretting that the Alps were so low, that their trudging was not to last a week. She was exhilarated, she liked to walk, in the way of mountains until within the last few weeks she had seen nothing greater than Mount Holyoke, and she found that the Alps amply justified their reputation. Roland knew that she loved nature, but he was struck afresh with the vivacity of her observation of it, and with her knowledge of plants and stones. At that season the wild flowers had mostly departed, but a few of them lingered, and Miss Garland never failed to espy them in their outlying corners. They interested her greatly. She was charmed when they were old friends, and charmed even more when they were new. She displayed a very light foot in going in quest of them, and had soon covered the front seat of the carriage with a tangle of strange vegetation. Roland, of course, was alert in her service, and he gathered for her several botanical specimens which at first seemed inaccessible. One of these, indeed, had at first appeared easier of capture than his attempt attested, and he had paused a moment at the base of the little peak on which it grew, measuring the risk of farther pursuit. Suddenly, as he stood there, he remembered Roderick's defiance of danger and of Miss Light at the Colosseum, and he was seized with a strong desire to test the courage of his companion. She had just scrambled up a grassy slope near him, and had seen that the flower was out of reach. As he prepared to approach it, she called to him eagerly to stop. The thing was impossible. Poor Roland, whose passion had been terribly starved, enjoyed immensely the thought of having her care, for three minutes, what became of him. He was the least brutal of men, but for a moment he was perfectly indifferent to her suffering. "'I can get the flower,' he called to her. "'Will you trust me?' "'I don't want it. I would rather not have it,' she cried. "'Will you trust me?' he repeated, looking at her. She looked at him and then at the flower. He wondered whether she would shriek and swoon, as Miss Light had done. "'I wish it was something better,' she said simply, and then stood watching him while he began to clamber. Roland was not shaped for an acrobat, and his enterprise was difficult, but he kept his wits about him, made the most of narrow footholds and coins of vantage, and at last secured his prize. He managed to stick it into his buttonhole, and then he contrived to descend. There was more than one chance for an ugly fall, but he evaded them all. 
It was doubtless not gracefully done, but it was done, and that was all he had proposed to himself. He was red in the face when he offered Miss Garland the flower, and she was visibly pale. She had watched him without moving. All this had passed without the knowledge of Mrs. Hudson, who was dozing beneath the hood of the carriage. Mary Garland's eyes did not perhaps display that ardent admiration which was formerly conferred by the Queen of Beauty at a tournament, but they expressed something in which Rowland found his reward. "'Why did you do that?' she asked gravely. He hesitated. He felt that it was physically possible to say, "'Because I love you,' but that it was not morally possible. He lowered his pitch and answered simply, "'Because I wanted to do something for you.' "'Suppose you had fallen,' said Miss Garland. "'I believed I would not fall, and you believed it, I think. "'I believed nothing. I simply trusted you as you asked me.' "'Quod erat demonstrandum,' cried Rowland. "'I think you know Latin.' When our four friends were established in what I have called their grassy valley, there was a good deal of scrambling over slopes, both grassy and stony, a good deal of flower-plucking on narrow ledges, a great many long walks, and thanks to the lucid mountain air, not a little exhilaration. Mrs. Hudson was obliged to intermit her suspicions of the deleterious atmosphere of the old world, and to acknowledge the edifying purity of the breezes of Engelthal. She was certainly more placid than she had been in Italy. Having always lived in the country, she had missed in Rome and Florence that social solitude mitigated by bushes and rocks, which is so dear to the true New England temperament. The little unpainted inn at Engelthal, with its plank partitions, its milk pans standing in the sun, its help in the form of angular young women of the countryside, reminded her of places of summer sojourn in her native land and the beautiful historic chambers of the Villa Pandolfini passed from her memory without a regret and without having in the least modified her ideal of domiciliary grace. Roderick had changed his sky, but he had not changed his mind. His humour was still that of which he had given Roland a glimpse in that tragic explosion on the Lake of Como. He kept his despair to himself, and he went doggedly about the ordinary business of life, but it was easy to see that his spirit was mortally heavy, and that he lived and moved and talked simply from the force of habit. In that sad half-hour among the Italian olives, there had been such a fierce sincerity in his tone that Roland began to abdicate the critical attitude. He began to feel that it was essentially vain to appeal to the poor fellow's will. There was no will left. Its place was an impotent void. This view of the case, indeed, was occasionally contravened by certain indications on Roderick's part of the power of resistance to disagreeable obligations. One might still have said, if one had been disposed to be didactic at any hazard, that there was a method in his madness, that his moral energy had its sleeping and its waking hours, and that, in a cause that pleased it, it was capable of rising with the dawn. But on the other hand, pleasure in this case was quite at one with effort. Evidently the greatest bliss in life for Roderick would have been to have a plastic idea. And then it was impossible not to feel tenderly to a despair which had so ceased to be aggressive, not to forgive a great deal of apathy to a temper which had so unlearned its irritability. Roderick said frankly that Switzerland made him less miserable than Italy, and the Alps seemed less to mock at his enforced leisure than the Apennines. 
He indulged in long rambles, generally alone, and was very fond of climbing into dizzy places where no sound could overtake him, and there flinging himself on the never-trodden moss, of pulling his hat over his eyes, and lounging away the hours in perfect immobility. Roland sometimes walked with him. Though Roderick never invited him, he seemed duly grateful for his society. Roland now made it a rule to treat him like a perfectly sane man, to assume that all things were well with him, and never to allude to the prosperity he had forfeited, or to the work he was not doing. He would have still said, had you questioned him, that Roderick's condition was a mood, certainly a puzzling one. It might last yet for many a weary hour, but it was a long lane that had no turning. Roderick's blues would not last for ever. Rowland's interest in Miss Garland's relations with her cousin was still profoundly attentive, and perplexed as he was on all sides, he found nothing transparent here. After their arrival at Engelthal, Roderick appeared to seek the young girl's society more than he had done hitherto, and this revival of ardour could not fail to set his friend a-wondering. They sat together and strolled together, and Miss Garland often read aloud to him. One day, on their coming to dinner, after he had been lying half the morning at her feet in the shadow of a rock, Roland asked him what she had been reading. "'I don't know,' Roderick said. "'I don't heed the sense.' Miss Garland heard this, and Roland looked at her. She looked at Roderick sharply, and with a little blush. "'I listen to Mary,' Roderick continued, "'for the sake of her voice. It's distractingly sweet.' At this Miss Garland's blush deepened, and she looked away. Roland, in Florence, as we know, had suffered his imagination to wander in the direction of certain conjectures which the reader may deem unflattering to Miss Garland's constancy. He had asked himself whether her faith in Roderick had not faltered, and that demand of hers which had brought about his own departure for Switzerland had seemed almost equivalent to a confession that she needed his help to believe. Roland was essentially a modest man, and he did not risk the supposition that Miss Garland had contrasted him with Roderick to his own advantage, but he had a certain consciousness of duty resolutely done, which allowed itself to fancy at moments that it might be not illogically rewarded by the bestowal of such stray grains of enthusiasm as had crumbled away from her estimate of his companion. If some day she had declared, in a sudden burst of passion, that she was outwearied and sickened, and that she gave up her recreant lover, Roland's expectation would have gone halfway to meet her. And certainly, if her passion had taken this course, no generous critic would utterly condemn her. She had been neglected, ignored, forsaken, treated with a contempt which no girl of a fine temper could endure. There were girls, indeed, whose fineness, like that of Bird Helen in the ballad, lay in clinging to the man of their love through thick and thin, and in bowing their head to all hard usage. This attitude had often an exquisite beauty of its own, but Roland deemed that he had solid reason to believe it could never be Mary Garland's. She was not a passive creature, she was not soft and meek and grateful for chance bounties. With all her reserve of manner, she was proud and eager, she asked much, and she wanted what she asked. She believed in fine things, and she never could long persuade herself that fine things missed were as beautiful as fine things achieved. Once Roland passed an angry day. He had dreamed, it was the most insubstantial of dreams, that she had given him the right to believe that she looked to him to transmute her discontent. 
and yet here she was, throwing herself back into Roderick's arms at his lightest overture, and playing with his own half-fearful, half-shameful hopes. Roland declared to himself that his possession was essentially detestable, and that all the philosophy he could bring to bear upon it would make it neither honourable nor comfortable. He would go away and make an end of it. He did not go away. He simply took a long walk, stayed away from the inn all day, and on his return found Miss Garland sitting out in the moonlight with Roderick. Roland, communing with himself during the restless ramble in question, had determined that he would at least cease to observe, to heed, or to care for what Miss Garland and Roderick might do or might not do together. Nevertheless, some three days afterward, the opportunity presenting itself, he deliberately broached the subject with Roderick. He knew this was inconsistent and faint-hearted. It was indulgence to the fingers that itched to handle forbidden fruit. But he said to himself that it was really more logical to be inconsistent than the reverse, for they had formerly discussed these mysteries very candidly. Was it not perfectly reasonable that he should wish to know the sequel of the situation which Roderick had then delineated? Roderick had made him promises, and it was to be expected that he should ascertain how the promises had been kept. Roland could not say to himself that if the promises had been extorted for Mary's garland's sake, his present attention to them was equally disinterested, and so he had to admit that he was indeed faint-hearted. He may perhaps be deemed too narrow a casuist, but we have repeated more than once that he was solidly burdened with a conscience. "'I imagine,' he said to Roderick, "'that you are not sorry at present to have allowed yourself to be dissuaded from making a final rupture with Miss Garland.' Roderick eyed him with a vague and absent look, which had lately become habitual to his face, and repeated, "'Dissuaded?' Don't you remember that in Rome you wished to break your engagement, and that I urged you to respect it, though it seemed to hang by so slender a thread? I wished you to see what would come of it. If I am not mistaken, you are reconciled to it." "'Oh, yes,' said Roderick, "'I remember what you said. You made it a kind of a personal favour to yourself, that I should remain faithful. I consented, but afterwards, when I thought of it, your attitude greatly amused me. Had it ever been seen before? a man asking another man to gratify him by not suspending his attentions to a pretty girl. It was as selfish as anything else, said Roland. One man puts his selfishness into one thing, and one into another. It would have utterly marred my comfort to see Miss Garland in low spirits. But you liked her, you admired her, eh? So you intimated. I admire her profoundly. It was your originality, then, to do you justice you have a great deal of a certain sort, to wish her happiness secured in just that fashion. Many a man would have liked better himself to make the woman he admired happy, and would have welcomed her low spirits as an opening for sympathy. You were awfully queer about it." "'So be it,' said Roland. The question is, are you not glad I was queer? Are you not finding that your affection for Miss Garland has a permanent quality which you rather underestimated? I don't pretend to say. When she arrived in Rome I found I didn't care for her, and I honestly proposed that we should have no humbug about it. If you, on the contrary, thought there was something to be gained by having a little humbug, I was willing to try it. I don't see that the situation is really changed. Mary Garland is all that she ever was, more than all. But I don't care for her. 
I don't care for anything, and I don't find myself inspired to make an exception in her favour. The only difference is that I don't care now whether I care for her or not. Of course, marrying such a useless lout as I am is out of the question for any woman, and I should pay Miss Garland a poor compliment to assume that she is in a hurry to celebrate our nuptials. "'Oh, you're in love,' said Rowland, not very logically. It must be confessed at any cost that this assertion was made for the sole purpose of hearing Roderick deny it. But it quite failed of its aim. Roderick gave a liberal shrug of his shoulders and an irresponsible toss of his head. "'Call it what you please. I am past caring for names.' Rowland had not only been illogical, he had also been slightly disingenuous. He did not believe that his companion was in love. He had argued the false to learn the true. The true was that Roderick was again, in some degree, under a charm, and that he found a healing virtue in Mary's presence, indisposed though he was to admit it. He had said, shortly before, that her voice was sweet to his ear, and this was a promising beginning. If her voice was sweet, it was probable that her glance was not amiss, that her touch had a quiet magic, and that her whole personal presence had learned the art of not being irritating. So Rowland reasoned, and invested Mary Garland with a still finer loveliness. End of chapter 12, part A